Another installment of the What Do You Make of This podcast, a podcast where two college professors discuss, debate, deliberate, and deconstruct important managerial issues of the day. Hello, Sean. How are you doing? Hello, Uri. You know what? I think this is the first time you've done the intro, and I'm going to take the role back permanently. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, don't take this away from me. That's the one thing I have going on in life. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. So how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Plugging along. It's a little chilly here in Rochester, New York, uh, unseasonably so, but usually the spring is a really beautiful time of the year here. So it's been wet and cold, but do the best we can. Yeah. Same here. It's pretty chilly in Melbourne also. I guess we're coming. Is that We kind of converge in the middle of the year as we head towards different seasons. Yeah. So it's it's usually chilly in May. In Melbourne or Sydney? Well, well they have different weather systems. I think Melbourne Do is they? normally colder than Sydney. But, you know, when you compare it to um, the northeast of the U.S., I, I don't think it's quite as chilly as you as you guys are, are used to. Is that because of, like, ocean currents, by the way, the difference between Sydney and Melbourne? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. So we have started our discussion with a, uh, a discussion of weather with weather. So anyone who was listening has already shut off. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. I apologize. No, but, it's uh, all good. Yeah, the 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 thing we're going to talk about today was wait, wait, wait before before we do. So I was yeah, I was. Well, we'll come back to it. We'll start again. I was driving home tonight, and I pulled up behind a car. That had like it was on all sides, including on the hood. It had like the the, the name of this podcast, like some guy set, pushing his podcast. And I'm not going to say the name of it because I haven't looked into it yet. And for all I know, it's like a neo-Nazi podcast or something. I don't even know. Um, so, but all I could think is maybe we should festoon our cars with uh, <laughs> with some chimpanzees. So the guy actually had bumper stickers all over his car. Oh my god! It, no, it wasn't just bumper stickers. It was like the the doors, the hood, the entire back panel of the car. It was everywhere. And you hadn't heard of that podcast? No, no. Yeah, no. I think that's where I would draw the line. I, I okay. I don't think that's your car. <laughs> my car. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. I just thought uh, it, it occurred to me since I was driving home. That's kind of funny. Anyway, go ahead. Jump us back in. What we're talking about today is CEOs and how their behavior, their decision-making, their backgrounds, and their attributes might impact on the performance of the organizations that they lead. And I got to say, when I first started started looking into it, I had a a part of me that was somewhat skeptical. Skeptical of the topic? Because or skeptical, I, yeah. Elaborate. Skeptical of the notion of of studying CEOs as a source of of um, differences in organizational performance, which is not to say that I don't understand what they do or appreciate the the significance that they have in organizations, but I, I couldn't help but think that this way of thinking about managers and organizations is is somewhat rooted in the American understanding of business and and people. 
and in kind of the the deep deep appreciation of individuals and uh um this way of of you know structuring the culture in the US around individual performance and entrepreneurship and if you if you believe strongly enough in yourself you're going to make it and succeed and it's all about the individual it's a very individualistic society yeah so i couldn't help but but think that this line of of research is emanates from that way of of thinking about the relationship between individuals and and societies and individuals and organizations let's probe your deep-seated anti-americanism just for a moment <laughs> um no i um actually i want to return to this idea of individualist versus collectivist but the why do you think it's so rooted in sort of an american perspective ceos exist in corporations all over the world right like don't you don't most asian corporations have a ceo don't most european no no so, uh, so let me ask I see you what you're saying. maybe it's the research question specifically and sort of interest in it's not just the research question is it's the conceptualization of business leaders and other types of leaders as well but you know, in the context of our conversation of business leaders as as heroes, mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. cultural heroes, we all know who um, Elon Musk is, or Bill Gates, yeah. or Jeff Bezos, right? We all know those names. But I actually looked it up before before we started our conversation, and I looked up um, some of the biggest companies in Europe. Um, so, who's the CEO of BMW? Do you know? Um... Dieter? No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that might be the name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the point is that we, we don't know who these guys are. But in the US, at least for some companies that are significant and have uh, an impact in the market and beyond financial markets, we know who the CEOs are. And we hold them in high esteem. Now that's interesting, and we might get quickly far afield, but uh, it, it, it's intriguing. So I want to probe it just a little bit. So you say that we hold them in high esteem. I, I take your point that we know their names and they sort of get press coverage and things like that. But I kind of think that we tend to disparage business leaders in the United States, uh, certainly on one side of the political aisle. But like anytime a Hollywood movie comes out, how do you know the bad guy? He's wearing a suit and he's the head of a corporation. That's the bad guy immediately, right? And so as much as you, you're right with certain figures, Elon Musk used to be everyone's sweetheart. And now he's like despised by so many people. Uh, it's it's wild to me. Uh, it, um, Jeff Bezos, I think, tends to get a lot of vitriol thrown his way not least because of the breakup of his marriage, but just in general, there's sort of these, I think a lot of these people tend to get a lot of heat as much as adulation. Do you disagree? Perhaps. And perhaps, no, I don't disagree with that assessment, but I think it might have to do a, at least to a degree with the way cultural wars have played out in the U.S. Sure. in the last decade or two. Yeah, well, and they're running hot right now brother that's for sure sure well it's never quite over there but and I, I think perhaps the the split between adulation on the one hand and and vitriol on the other hand is is somewhat aligned with political stances well and I think have. the other element and this is not something we're going to be able to get into tonight because this is not in the research that we've looked at but it might be something for a subsequent discussion one of the things that surprised me that didn't come up was the discussion about contributions of CEOs relative to their compensation 
because in the US, the compensation is so far out of line with sort of compensation of the standard of the average worker within an organization that it's it's kind of wild. And that that does not, I was intrigued by the fact that that does not come up in this research that we have looked at. Yeah, I wonder if I, I imagine there's research that, that talks about compensation, how it relates to performance and maybe even gaps in compensation between common worker or average salary within a company and and CEO pay and how those relate to firm performance. Yeah, I think it's probably in the sociology literature and not in any of the business disciplines that you or I would tend to look at. Oh, now you're just being cynical. No, well, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but can I just say, I wanted to quickly jump back to the point we were making before about treating CEOs as with adulation or vitriol. And I think in either in either case, you know, whether you love them and admire them or hate them or despise them, in both cases, you still, both positions still attribute them with a significant amount of power and ability to drive processes and change within organizations and beyond organizations, right? Yes. If you love them or hate them, either way, you can see the point that they're powerful individuals. Yes. And in that respect, I do think I, I take your point about this sort of American perspective in that they are held up as either heroic or anti-heroic figures, right? Meaning that they are imbued with such power that this one individual can make or break the organization or or define outcomes and things like that. And that is sort of a, I think it's a stereotypically American uh, outlook on on the role of a given individual. Finally, we agree yes, on something. Yes, exactly. So I, I think it might be interesting as a starting point for the conversation to look at uh, or to talk about what it is that CEOs actually do in their day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. And um, there's at least one or maybe even two of the papers that we looked at today that kind of touch on this point. And I, I suppose I wasn't entirely surprised by what they found uh, because we've been around CEOs and I've, I've read a bunch of stuff about you know CEOs' behavior and, and what it is that they do. I was a little surprised. Were you? Half, more than half of their time is spent in meetings that like that so we could go ahead and introduce this uh this is actually the the one study that we looked at that explored this uh, in some depth was actually not a study but a summary of multiple studies uh the researcher's name is Rafaela Sadoun don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly um and it's it's sort of a summary called CEOs and firm performance and it's on the MB um National Bureau of Economic Research often the acronym NBER is used there um and she summarizes several studies that she's done with a, a, a whole array of colleagues. And one of the one of the elements that comes out right away is number one: there's huge variance in what they do. Is that you know people, the CEOs are all over the board, but this idea that more than half of their time, on average, is spent in meetings. Good lord! Um, I guess I, I shouldn't be surprised. Just even as a college professor, as a department chair, I spend a lot of my own time in meetings. But somehow that just that struck me as crazy inefficient use of of a supposedly heroic person's time, you know, sitting in meetings. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a bit contradictory to the conception of the CEO as the person who's at the helm of the organization and who 
should arguably spend a lot of their time thinking big thoughts and and plotting strategies and plans ahead and thinking about big structures big changes to the organization and you gotta wonder whether meetings are an enabler of these activities or a distraction from these activities i i i don't think people would engage in that many meetings unless it was seen as sort of critical to to do to the communication of the organization it's sort of like the breathing of the organization um so as much as everyone hates meetings i do think it's one of these things that just we realize it emerges as critical because it just it has to happen right it's it's how we communicate and how we get on the same page yeah but i i guess i wonder how much what what proportion of those meetings have a strategic nature oh yeah surely that's a that's a smaller number a dramatically smaller yeah yeah and one one thing that i oh no actually it, it does appear in in that study it seems like a large proportion of those meetings are planned. So that one doesn't surprise me, though, because, you know, I'm very, as we move toward the end of a semester, I'm comfortable. I'm very happy to see that my schedule gets freed up dramatically. But in general, when you try to get on the calendar of the the person in the big seat, like our dean, for example, her calendar is locked up tight. Like it is, it is, she makes time for people, but it is challenging because the demand for her time is enormous. And so people are always, uh, always filling it up. So I think planned is sort of almost a necessity just to, just to function in that type of a role. And it also appears from this study that a large proportion of CEO's time involves meeting people from inside the organization rather than from outside of it like external entities or actors yeah interestingly though i think well and i think we're going to turn to this idea of sort of types of ceos in a second and we can return to this but that varies somewhat based on the type of ceo and the general behavior of the ceo i will say one other high order detail here that surprised me is they had a, a, a histogram of hours spent and eyeballing this it's basically it suggests that the mean number of hours weekly by ceos is 50 does that strike you as surprising yeah but i think it uh, yes but there's a huge variation there as True. well so it's got a it's got a long right hand tail so there's like people who might spend closer to 100 and others it's been 25 but still even a mean of 50 strikes me as an incredibly small number um, but one other thing I wanted to mention is when when we consider to what degree CEOs spend their time thinking about strategic issues versus more operational stuff, there is actually a breakdown here that might shed some light on this. And it seems like the the most common spend of uh, most common thing. CEOs spend they, their time doing is interacting with people from the production side of the business, mm -hmm. followed by marketing, then C-suite individuals, then clients, then suppliers, and finally consultants. So that would indicate to me that the majority of their time is not spent on strategic issues. Yeah, but does that surprise you? Like, would you expect it to be? Like, how how much time can a can a chief executive spend? strategizing like you set your strategy and then at some point it's got to get you got to get down to operations yeah no I, I guess it's not surprising 
um, when you put it like that. But it, it is interesting. When you put it in that rude tone, it suddenly seems quite <laughs> obvious. Well, you can't, you can't help yourself. You're an American. I'm used to it. <laughs> With your hats and tones and self-love and admiration. <laughs> I, I plead guilty to all those things. Well, not really. Anyway, <laughs> hats for sure. So another thing I thought was um, the caps, the baseball yes. caps. I, I should point out to um, the listeners who can't see the the video feed as the as Sean in no one on since we don't post a video feed. <laughs> <laughs> Sean um, is wearing a cap. Yes, Sean on occasion would wear a, a baseball cap. What? Oh, this one is this a Harvard hat? Yes. Oh yeah. We got to edit that out because otherwise people will throw all kinds of shade my way. But it is my alma mater. I mean, everyone else can wear their colors. Everyone else can wear their gear. And as soon as I do, people are like, oh, my God, he's such a snob. Um, Another thing I thought was interesting that the study found was that family business CEOs work 9% fewer hours than other firms CEOs. Oh yeah, the family business CEOs come out looking like, oh my god, it's a it's a shock slackers, yeah, right? It's, it's surprising that their organizations have been maintained at all. It's like, yeah, I'll work 10 hours and then go on vacation. I thought that was interesting. Unless unless the CEOs are external hires that come to manage family businesses. But so what it says here is that family family firm CEOs uh um, they appear to be more likely to take time off when popular sporting events are being broadcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the details are hilarious. <laughs> where there's like holidays, they take holidays off. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they're less likely to work their usual schedules when snowstorms or other weather shocks make it more difficult to reach the office. Uh, and was just, and I think there was something about golf as well, wasn't there? Uh, well, I guess that could have been one of the sporting events, but I didn't catch that in particular. Oh no, maybe I maybe I made that the, up. The weather one maybe. is for those of us who live in the Northeast. Uh, <laughs> that resonates a little bit. And it also says that eighteen percent of performance gap between family and non-family business is explained due to effort to CEO effort. Eighteen percent of the performance gap is explained by CEO yeah, effort. So these family firms are run by people who like they've made their bank and now they're ready to just relax and and family firms this is a topic for another day but family firms have traditionally been had huge problems with succession planning because you know if dad's working 20 hours and then expects uh you know one of the kids to come in and put in 30 hours that's a stretch uh no that's not really the reason but there there are traditionally those types of issues and definitely the family firm ceos come off looking like slackers yeah. But what so one of the things that came out of this that came out of one of these studies that I thought was really interesting, and this is still the Sadun set, um, was they used some machine learning tools to discern two high-level classes of CEO behavior. And one of the things I I was curious about, and I did not go and find the subs the the lower level detail in the other paper, but when they came up with two categories, I wondered, well, you're using machine learning. Is it kind of like uh, factor analysis um, that, that we would do in sort of statistical analysis where you're sort of saying, how many factors do I want to extract? And if they were forcing two, 
out of the ML technique. So saying, you know, look at the look at the patterns and find me two broad categories. But the two broad categories that emerged were manager style and leader style, where manager style is sort of a person who do, engages in a lot of meetings with uh, production personnel and a lot of one-on-one -on -one meetings and things of that nature, whereas leader style tended to be people who are meeting more with multiple people, engaging in, in meetings with uh, multiple stakeholders, internal and external, and multiple people all at once, and also spending more time with the C-suite executive. So they're sort of top management team. Um, so first, that was kind of interesting as two categories. But then also what you see is that in general, the leader behavior, the leader style, tends to have higher effectiveness, right? or at least there's strong evidence that they're more effective overall in terms of firm performance. So um, we'll get into our takeaways later, but it did suggest to me this sort of, you know, the micromanager who's focusing on, you know, a lot of focus on production activities and one-to-one -one meetings, uh, maybe not the most effective use of time. I think that's one interpretation of it, that the manager style versus the leader style is more, focused around managing the day-to-day -day activities of people. But perhaps another angle from which to look at it is that the leaders who tend to have more meetings with multiple individuals from C-suite, um, from the C-suite are more focused on strategic long-term thinking and decision-making. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. So maybe, I, I mean, they're not either or, both of them can obviously coexist, but I, I, it doesn't, the, the, paper doesn't make it clear which of these two aspects are actually contributing to the increased productivity because it does say that one standard deviation in CEO behavior is associated with an increase of 7% in sales, which is the dependent variable that they looked at. It's pretty, you know, that's a not a, an, a negligible number. Right, for sure. And, and you're right. Actually, as I look across several of these studies that we looked at, the sort of correlation causation thing is dicey, right? We have to be very careful about uh, asserting causality behind any of these dynamics. But my interpretation, and this this ties to a different study that we looked at, but my interpretation of that leader behavior piece is, is sort of underscoring the importance of delegation um, and having CEOs who are people who don't try to have their hands into everything and are much better about delegating various tasks to other members of the organization, other members of their leadership team. Yeah. And, and the paper looked at the propensity of CEOs to delegate decision-making across one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 different countries. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so the country where CEOs are most happy to delegate is Sweden. And then the next one really surprised me, in fact. It was the US, followed by the UK, Germany, Italy, France, Portugal, Poland, China, India, Japan, and Greece was the, the country where CEOs were least likely to delegate, mm -hmm. which again, I thought was surprising because to me, and maybe it's a very crude characterization of the country, but it's kind of a, a very communal, small country where People have lots of informal and strong ties with other people. So it, I guess, it, yeah, I didn't expect CEOs to be more on the formal side over there. So I will say this, 
one thing that gets to me, and this is a topic, again, we could probably do a whole session on this, but this whole individualist versus collectivist thing, right? Like for years, people have talked about, well, you have individualist cultures and collectivist cultures, and the the individualist cultures are typically the United States and a lot of Anglosphere countries, and the collectivist cultures tend to be Asian and other uh, developing world countries and economies. And I have always found that the implicit, the unspoken element was the individualist is really worse, right? The individualist countries, it implies selfishness or something like that. And it always, maybe it's because I'm an American, but it always stuck in my craw. Like there are upsides to individualist uh, economic systems as well, right? I mean, certainly we need collective support, but um, some of the research shows in in quote unquote collectivist cultures, there tends to be a lot more uh, downward or upward social comparison where you know what all your neighbors make and you, you're always judging yourself relative to your neighbors and things like that. So there are upsides and downsides to both the individualist and collectivist perspective and the implicit critique that's always embedded in that drives me crazy. I'm not sure to what degree there's always an implicit critique. Maybe it's just a manifestation of your deeply seated insecurity <laughs> about being American. <laughs> that's, that could be true. And deep down, <laughs> deep down, you really wish you were European wearing tight jeans without f- silly baseball caps. Come on, just come out with it, Sean. Tight jeans are. You wish you were tight, French. Tight jeans are quite common in the United States these days. <laughs> <laughs> are they really? I mean, skinny jeans were a thing for a long time there. I recall <laughs> our mutual friend Nick. I recall who's American from Cleveland used to make fun of um, Europeans for wearing tight jeans, and he thought it was um, silly. Yeah, leather pants, all that whole that whole look. Not even leather. But anyway, yeah. but okay, your your so the but, um point yeah go ahead your your point aside uh, whether I agree with it or not, I was still surprised to find the U.S. ranked second on on this list where you know I think we all agree that it's relatively compared to other countries individualistic, but still you find CEOs there who are quite willing to delegate their responsibilities to um to other people yeah but that's a non sequitur to me why would an individualist society imply that people are uh unwilling to delegate like individuals doesn't mean that everyone expects to do everything themselves but we do have the or at least i i thought that was the case maybe i was wrong that there's this conception of the ceo as the individualistic hero who has this you know position of power and influence within the organization and that everybody follows them and you know but look maybe uh maybe it's more of a myth than than reality at least based on these numbers it seems to be um quite diverged from reality yeah but i, I don't uh, so i'm not sure that it's a myth and reality thing i think what we see from the literature and from this these studies in particular is that delegation's a good thing is that environments in which the the senior leadership delegates authority and empowers other levels of the organization to initiate action on their own makes the organization more resilient. One of the things that came out of this study in particular was it said during, in the wake of the great recession. So this was the, 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 in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, right? That firms that had more decentralized structures performed better. I can only imagine Mm -hmm. that that's even more pronounced in, in the 
um, I keep using the wake of, but after the uh, pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, I'm sure the same dynamic played out. We would have to look for newer research, but uh, I imagine the same dynamic played out where firms that are more decentralized flourished in that period of disruption. What do you think the explanatory mechanism is? Complexity and empowerment. So uh, organizations are complex systems, right? And complex systems, to manage that complexity, to manage the complexity of the outside environment, they have to be adaptive. And so modularity, this, this could be a whole separate topic for us, right? But modularity is one solution to complexity. How do you deal with complexity? You empower different people and groups inside of the organization to self-manage and to adapt to the conditions that they're encountering. And, and, and in the same way that a market, an, another M, is a solution to complexity by empowering individuals to make their own economic choices in the wake of this complex system that is the market, right? And you get a higher order, higher level order that emerges out of those small scale interactions in the aggregate. And I think the same thing happens in organizations. There's a, a principle that I believe is called the law of requisite variety. Mm -hmm. Is mm -hmm. that right? Yes. From Ashby, I, I think. That's right. Systems thinking, cybernetics, that kind of thing. And which which states something along the following lines, that for a system like a complex organization to be successful, it must have sufficient variety in terms of tasks, uh, in terms of skills and, and capabilities and types of knowledge that at least match those of its environment. Right, the complexity of the environment. And if it doesn't have sufficient variety, then that system is going to fail. And I think it goes, it matches well with the point that you made before, which is that, you know, the more we have, the more modularity and freedom and flexibility we have within the business to allow different people and groups within it to develop their own unique skills that might have to do with a specific area of the, of the business they're working within, the more variety we're going to have within, within the organization that would allow it to match the, the variety of, of its environment and therefore flourish and be successful. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think we're seeing here. I think decentralization is that structure that is more responsive because in the same way that, uh, well, you know, I'm starting to show my own uh, market preferences, but, you know, I'm a believer in free market economics because I think planned economies don't adapt, don't adapt if, as effectively in response to uh, change and, and turmoil because they're, they're trying to have all of those decisions made in a centralized way. So that's definitely the piece. Yeah. Now, I would like us to turn just slightly on this topic because it gets to this um, question of sort of what are the characteristics of a CEO in terms of those behaviors? We talked about manager behavior and leader behavior, um, but there's also some, some lower level details that I think we saw in the research that was quite interesting. For example, we saw or we looked at together one study uh, that was in European Management Journal. This was Jensen et al. And it's um, it looks at the impact of transformational leadership style on the on the impact that CEOs have on firm performance. Um, and transformational leadership style, just quickly to define it, it's this idea of leadership that inspires and motivates followers to sort of transcend their self-interests in pursuit of collective outcomes, collective purposes, right? And in the study, so let's just be more let, let let's be a bit more specific because it has four right. dimensions that researchers typically use. 
uh, and they operationalize them in slightly different ways. So the dimensions are of transformational leadership are idealized influence, which is the degree to which the manager acts as a role model. Mm-hmm. The second one is inspirational motivation, which is the degree to which the leader is able of effectively communicating a shared vision. Intellectual stimulation involves the degree to which the leader is able to foster innovative and unconventional thinking. And finally, individualized consideration, which is the ability of the leader to act as a coach or a mentor. And address individual needs of members of the organization. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the four dimensions of transformational leadership. Yeah. And that study specifically, it was quite interesting methodologically because they sort of looked at 75 firms and their CEOs and they created these profiles of the CEOs and then asked a panel of experts to um, to measure them vis-a-vis those four dimensions. Uh, but then the performance of the firm was measured. Almost all these studies, return on assets is the key measurement, right? Which is a standard accounting measure. It's net income divided by total assets of the firm. So it's a very common measure in accounting circles. But return on assets is a is a measure of firm performance across all these studies we looked at. But they said, okay, with those four dimensions, what influence do the presence or absence of those have on the impact of the firm? And they found two, two of the four had a very substantive impact. So inspirational motivation. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the ability to sort of set a vision for the organization and, you know, an attractive future state. So sort of get rally everyone around a vision about where the organization should go. And, and and that one in particular had very high, uh, very significant uh, impacts on performance. And the second one was intellectual stimulation, which again, is this idea of challenging assumptions and, and trying to foster innovative and creative problem solving. And those two had a big influence, whereas idealized influence, trying to be a role model and act as a role model had almost none. Well, none, really. It wasn't significant. Yeah. Yeah. And individualized consideration, this sort of focusing on the needs of individuals and being sensitive to the needs of individuals within the organization had some marginal significance, specifically on return on um, assets. But it, it was quite marginal consi- uh, relative to the other two, uh, which I found that really interesting. You know, like what is it that makes a difference, at least with regard to this transformational style, what is it that makes a difference? The ability to set a vision that people can rally around and the ability to 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 challenge taken for granted within the firm and to try to be a little unconventional and innovative was there anything here that that surprised you that you think was that you thought was going to turn out differently um so i was surprised that these four elements which have traditionally been part of a single construct transformational leadership had very different out had very different effects right which suggests to me, again, from a scientific perspective, that they should probably be treated as different constructs, because they're clearly they're cl- clearly operating in different ways. Um, I would have to delve deeper into the broader literature on transformational leadership, but at first blush, that was something that really struck me. Yeah, one thing that I <clears throat> feel a bit uncomfortable about with these sort of studies that try to draw. Uh, a direct link from CEO, in this case, CEO's, I guess, leadership style to financial performance, the financial performance of the firm, is that when you think about this in a in a practical way, 
surely there's a there's a number of intervening layers in between the leadership style of the of the CEO that mediate between that style and the actual performance of the business. And and this study kind of blocks it out, right? What is it about the leadership style that how how does it translate to the way that operational layers or levels within the firm or mid-level managers um down to the shop? How does it affect what they do on a day-to-day basis? How does it affect the way that they think about what they do, how they actually perform their roles, how motivated they are, how satisfied they are, and all these different activities and structures that are, that you know are situated between the what the CEO does and and the way they perform, and the DV, the dependent variable, on the other end of it, which is the financial performance. And and uh, to me, it's just a, a very significant black box that stands in between these two things. That this sort of studies they don't don't attend to it at yeah, all. Yeah, well, I don't know. My reaction was a little bit different with that particular study because at least it broke into what are the characteristics. You, you're right that there is a, a gap. There's a gap, but at least it got into the characteristics of the CEO and not just you know a very high level idea of them. You know strategic focus or something like that. At least it got into what are the behaviors of the CEO, similar to the leader and manager behavior that we saw in the other study that can actually drive performance. So, you know, later on tonight, when we jump to this this concept of implications, to me, that's a, there's huge takeaways there. Yes, but I'm, I'm, I, it leaves me wondering. So for instance, we, we just saw that individualized consideration, right? Which is the capacity of the leader to act as a coach or a mentor to pay attention to specific individuals in the firm. That is That does not have a significant impact on performance. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Is it because that this aspect of the role is completely not important? Is it because that there might be other individuals within the firm that act in this capacity such that the CEO doesn't have to do it? I mean, how does this... How does this element in the model play out in actual day-to-day circumstances in different businesses different businesses i can see the face you're making which which our listeners cannot see (laughs) it's a face of exasperation not exasperation um, and despair not exasperation but to to a degree (laughs) i feel like you're asking the researchers for example to prove a negative why does it like idealized influence why does it not have an effect that's sort of like proving a negative as opposed to saying, I think a more interesting line of inquiry would be to say, okay, if, uh, you know, the, the elements that we, that we know do have an effect, the, um, inspirational motivation and intellectual stimulation, why do those seem to impact firm performance? And, and I, I'm asking this question as well. Well, I think that that is, that is an interesting question. And I think that's a good, some follow-up, research that would be very interesting is delving into the mechanics of of how that sort of plays out how is it that the inspirational motivation uh drives for performance and and getting that in between would be good and so as luck would have it we did look at another study that that looked at uh an intervening variable that stands between ceo behavior and firm performance this is a study by ashford at all two roads to effectiveness ceo feedback seeking vision articulation firm performance this is from the journal of organizational behavior Mm -hmm. and what the authors do here is that they examine two distinct types of 
CEO behavior, feedback seeking, which is the capacity to which CEOs directly ask other people um, around them for feedback on their behavior and the impact of, of their behavior. So that's one type of of um, CEO activity that, that, that they're looking at. And the other one is CEO vision articulation, right? The degree to which the leader is able or has the capacity to clearly articulate a shared vision that would galvanize people around them um, to act jointly in service of some kind of a shared objective or goal. Yeah. And that one certainly lines up pretty well with the inspirational motivation that we saw in the preceding. Yeah. Part of the transformational leadership construct. And and so they examine a couple of different things here. They examine how these two types of behaviors impact directly firm performance. And they both do. But they also get, So they, both of they those both elements, do. both feedback seeking and vision articulation have a direct positive impact on firm performance. Again, also measured as return on assets. Yes, but what they add here is another mediating variable, which goes back to the point that we made before, this black box that they tried to fill up here by looking at TMT potency. So TMT stands for top management team, which is the C-suite and, and their potency, right? That's the, it's a, it's a perceptual, perceptual construct that captures the degree to which people on that team believe that they're able to effectively work together to solve um, and address difficult problems and challenges that they face. But but it's it's a good point. So yes, this idea of top management team potency is a, a mediating factor, but only for one of those two independent variables. So it's only in only with regard to feedback seeking. The feedback seeking behavior um, enhances top management team potency, which in turn does have positive impact on firm performance. So yeah, the CEO's um, feedback-seeking behavior empowers TMT members to feel more potent um, and feel like they're better able to tackle significant challenges and problems. Um, so there's a, a, a significant positive relationship between feedback-seeking behavior from the CEO and TMT potency, which in turn is positively and significantly related to firm performance. Yeah, I found this one really interesting. I found this whole study quite interesting. But uh, that finding in particular was intriguing because um, there's a certain element of sort of, I, I don't know, maybe this is my Americanism, but there's a certain element of almost vulnerability signaling in the feedback seeking, right? Like this idea of the CEO regularly seeking feedback, you're signaling certain vulnerability because it means you got to be open to negative feedback too. You got to be open, can't just be open to praise. You got to be open to, you know, uh, feedback that suggests, you know, uh, the need for a course correction. And so I found that really interesting that, that, that the part of the role for the um, CEO is to seek feedback and maybe signal, look, I don't know. I don't have all the answers. Uh, I want you as my management team to also offer guidance for us as a collective. I think feedback seeking behavior also makes people feel the people whose feedback is sought make them feel like their opinion is valued. Right. And that right. the organization as embodied in that person, the CEO actually cares about what they have to say and, and things highly of their opinion. There's empirical research that that makes the point 
that it's important for CEOs to seek feedback mm -hmm. because CEOs who don't seek feedback, and at least I and I, I bet other people as well can think of any number of political leaders and other types of leaders as well, yeah. but specifically political leaders jump to my mind. Orange ones? Oh, well, yes. He's not in a position of power right now, but for instance, but I, he's not unique in that way at all, right? The, you can think of any number of, of political leaders from different countries and for a combination of different reasons, I guess, and it would probably vary by country and, and, and political system. But oftentimes leaders don't get sufficient feedback about what's happening around them and which creates this dangerous informational vacuum because they have no idea how their behaviors and decisions impact on those that surround them and beyond. And so they they end up being cooped up in this world where I, I don't know what portion of it is completely imaginary and not not grounded in actual in actual numbers and facts about what's happening around them. Yeah, this is actually part of the phenomenon called groupthink. Uh, Irving Janis's work from the 1980s articulates characteristics of uh, what makes for groupthink. Interestingly, he came up with that name um, from the Cuba Missile Crisis. Well, that's where a lot of the theorizing came from. Uh, but actually, the name was uh, drawing on someone you have invoked earlier. He he came up with the name for the phenomenon of groupthink by uh, from 1984, from sort of the new think uh, concepts in 1984. And you'll notice that the name actually quite sounds like one of those Orwellian neologisms. Uh, but yeah, right. I mean, so in in that whole domain, and this could be a whole separate discussion, but one of the key topics is this filtering of information. In groupthink phenomena, you have one or a few numbers of people within a group who actually filter out contradictory information. And that filtering out, they see as a service to the group, but it actually leads to way suboptimal outcomes because that filtering out means that the group is not aware of important information that they should be privy to. Yeah, and it, it might lead to what some people call the CEO disease which is this informational vacuum that that I mentioned before, whereby the leader is just unaware of the environment because people around them withhold information from them. So this is this is a this is an empirical question, and I don't I don't know that we have it that we can draw on here. But do you think that vacuum occurs because people are afraid to tell the CEO things they don't think the CEO wants to hear, or or some other mechanism? Like why do you think that? that vacuum emerges well that was the first explanatory mechanism that jumped to my mind which is that people might be concerned about the repercussions from delivering bad news or or challenging information to the ceo to the leader sure. and i think that's a real danger you know if if you're a ceo and you have a certain style to your leadership that other people might construe as being authoritative or assertive or overly aggressive you know anything from that family of, of of adjectives i think you're running the real risk of people not delivering the full information and the full scope of what's happening around you to you which mm -hmm. which can have very serious detrimental consequences mm -hmm. not just for you individually but for the whole business yeah for sure I think it's a really important insight. 
So there is one other topic or one other study that I wanted to at least touch on. This was Hamori and Koyuchu, Koyunchu. I'm butchering the name. It was in Human Resource Management. And the, the title is Experience, Experience Matters. Matters. Yes. Oh, right. No, no. There's, there's a question mark. <laughs> I like how Experience you, Matters. I like how you're putting the question mark into your tone. Quite right. Experience <laughs> matters. The impact of prior CEO experience on firm performance. And wait, wait, before you yeah. go, before you say anything else, before you read the paper and just saw the title, what did you think the findings were going to be? Um, so I guess I didn't pay much attention to the question mark. <laughs> um, <laughs> I would have thought absolutely experience matters. I would, I would have thought people with prior CEO experience, prior experience in the role of CEO at another firm would have significantly higher performance or impact on firm performance than those who didn't. I think the findings are very counterintuitive. And from a research perspective, counterintuitive is interesting, right? If you get findings where you're like, that's not what I expected at all. That's as a researcher, that's what you want to see. And that's what you want your own research to engender, right? Is like counterintuitive uh, findings. And I thought the findings here, which I'm going to cut to the chase a little bit, is basically not only does experience not matter, prior experience as a CEO leads to significantly lower firm performance. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was quite counterintuitive. And yet the way in which the hypotheses are articulated is like they're postulating at every step, prior experience as a CEO will lead to lower performance. Prior experience as a CEO within the industry will lead to lower performance. Prior experience with a similar size firm will lead to lower performance. And several of these things turn out to be true, but uh, you know, it didn't strike me as something that I would have theorized at all. I, I would have been inclined to go the opposite way. I will say the the degree to which performance was lower was not enormous, right? The effect size was relatively small, and yet it, it is still in the direction that's opposite of what I would have expected. Now, once you see it, and this is the beauty of a counterintuitive finding, once you see it, you can start to tell the story or you can start to work out the story in your own head. So here, it kind of makes sense to me, right? Like once you realize, okay, prior performance as a CEO led to worse or prior experience as a CEO led to worse performance, you can imagine, okay, well, what's happening here is that this person thinks that you can cookie cut their, their solutions from a previous organization into a new context and think it's going to work. And that's not how the world presents itself to us, right? In in my earlier incarnation as a consultant, we used to always have people coming into firms and saying, well, this is the way we should do this. And what it really meant was the way a given firm had done it in their last engagement. So do you think this is an indication of intellectual laziness on the part of the CEO or vanity on their part to think that what worked before is going to work again, or just being completely convinced in the way that they, that they do thing and, and completely sure that they know what to do and, and things are going to work I out. I think those latter two. So I think it is, I think CEOs, they go from one firm to the next. And if they've been successful at the prior firm, they think, I understand the way it works. I know what other people don't know. I know the secret sauce. 
I'll make it work. And they come into a new organization with different dynamics, again, complex systems, right? Different dynamics, different people, different capabilities. And they think what worked in the previous one will work in the new one without recognizing, no, you're not the heroic figure. You know, you, you can't just assume that your way will work in any context. That's my intuition. What do you think? What do you make of this? I agree with, with your assessment. And I think in some way, this this needs to be taken as a wake-up call for managers in, in general and CEOs in particular to be more, more attuned to the specific nature of the organization that they lead. And it goes back to... so. I think I, I, I've mentioned before that I, I teach PhDs philosophy philosophy of science, and I talk to them about paradigms, and I, I use managerialism as a, an example of of a paradigm that's prevalent in society, at least some parts of in some parts of the world. And managerialism basically embodies the idea that the same set of principles and and techniques can be used to manage any sort of organization from a you know, a small corner shop to a, a golf club to a, to a large multinational corporation. And if you look at MBA programs, for instance, in most schools around the world, they're structured in very similar ways, right? You have a marketing department and a, an operations department and an OB and organizational behavior department. And yeah, it reflects the exact silos that we critique in organizational. Yeah, but they're very, they're very similar all over the world and and the similarity ref reflects the way that we think about how to best manage an organization what we need to be, to what we need to know to be able to effectively manage organizations and when you see a finding like this from the study i think it stands in 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 contradiction to this way of thinking about it right because organizations are not all the same right they made up of different people that have different expectations interests backgrounds they have different processes and, and and structures, different objectives, different goals, different identities, um, different ways of thinking about themselves and what they need to do and what what they stand for and and how what is the best way for them to position themselves in relation to the broader social circles within which they they reside. So there's all these very significant variations across different organizations where if you have this mindset of what I've done before is gonna work again because i know best because i was a successful ceo mm -hmm. it might come to come back to um kind of bite you in in the ass right absolutely and I, I i can think of i have a i'm not going to name any names of people or organizations but i have recently witnessed a new organizational senior leader who might as well have been a ceo that's not the specific title in this instance but they're like a ceo who are doing exactly this. They recently moved from one very large organization to manage another very large organization. And they have imported with them the same language, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the same terminology, and the exact same mindset of, by the way, we talked about leaders and managers before. This person is obviously a manager, a micromanager. They're even bringing with them a bunch of people from the previous organization to the new organization. So they're basically looking to impose whatever worked before on this new organizational context. And I'm concerned that it's not going to work. Yeah, I think your concern is warranted. Yeah, I, I will offer a counterpoint that 
I see in my own organization, again, Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. But our dean is really good about seeking feedback. She has her own vision. She definitely knows where she would like to go, but she's always open to input from others and willing to change course based on consensus perspectives. And, and I do think um, that willingness to change course is is critical. And I think it's been important for, for us as an organization. And I think we see the same thing playing itself out in the research. So let's let's see what we can glean out of all of this. The first thing that stand out stands out to me is the variation in what CEOs actually do on a day-to-day -day basis. Variation both in terms of the amount of effort and time they spend acting as CEOs. We saw there's a, a great disparity in, in terms of weekly hours and even how how this diversity or variation rather maps onto types of organizations. Mm -hmm. And we talked about the difference between family businesses and other types of businesses. I thought that was a very interesting point yeah. that, I, that I did not expect to see. I thought it was also interesting to see how the degree to which CEOs delegate decision-making varies by country, again, in, in ways that I, I thought were surprising. But, but in terms of implications for managers, like if you're, so I guess to me in this particular topic, we could, we could think of a couple different sets of managers who, who, who might want to get some in, insights from this, this body of research. One is people who aspire to be CEOs or are, newly positioned as CEOs and, and might seek guidance for how to flourish within the role. Others might be boards that are looking to identify effective CEOs. Others might be members of top management teams. I think one of the very clear messages that comes from all of this is articulating a vision matters a lot, right? And we see this in several of these. The ability to articulate a vision around which people can rally is very important. At the same time, I think we have to, that should come with the caveat of not assuming that you come in with the vision fully formed, right? Like we said, you got to get feedback. You got to understand your environment. You got to uh, learn from those around you and articulate a vision that, that people will rally around and not assume that you can just force it on to people. So I think those two are very clear. It's important to articulate a vision, but it's also important to, to get feedback and input from the members of your organization. So I guess that's guidance for people that are sort of moving into leadership roles. Another point of guidance that came out of this was if you're a board that's looking to hire a CEO or if you're a CEO that's starting out with a new organization, another point that came out of one of the studies was that the ability to foster innovative thinking within the business is significantly related to firm performance mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right so that's the the ability to challenge the way people think about certain problems and issues yeah and the way things have been done before yeah which obviously it's easier said than done because in in many cases there's so much sunk cost involved in the way things are currently done and it actually makes me think of um you know the theory of disruptive innovations from christensen yeah and oftentimes businesses kind of buy into their own success at the expense of their capacity to look at what's happening in the market, specifically trends and innovations that come from the bottom of the market. 
and the, the tendency that many organizations have is to you know if if you're doing something and it's core to your business and it's made you successful and significantly it, it, it leads to a significant portion of your revenue and, and and profitability why on earth would you stop doing that right, right why on earth would you change doing what you're doing if you're a successful business and it's a very risky risky position to be in especially in industries and markets that are you know dynamic and volatile that involve many new entrants yeah but what's the insight that comes from uh, again so christensen the whole disruptive innovation thing is a whole separate uh as some of my family members would say a whole nother topic that's a, a great Midwesternism, a whole nother. That, that is probably a whole nother topic. But but what's the insight from that? One of the insights from that is that a decentralized approach can work, right? You can set up heavyweight teams. So you can set up units within the organization that aren't sort of held to quite the same guidelines or rules as the rest of the organization so they can innovate and do things differently. And so again, it gets back to this idea of decentralizing power, delegating power. If you want to be effective, as a manager, you have to be willing to give up the reins and empower those around you to do things and to initiate action sometimes on their own and in ways that that maybe you don't have that, that you don't get clearance on first. Absolutely. But I think the the ability of the CEO to foster and encourage people and even challenge people to think about issues and 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 challenges and problems from a different perspective is part and parcel of this process. I think they're, they're, they're two different or three different components of the same system, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which allows for organizations to be more agile and adaptive and dynamic and responsive to changes in the environment. So yeah, I, I think all of these things are interrelated. For sure. For sure. Agreed. Um, I do think since you invoked some guidance for boards responsible for identifying CEOs, I think a very clear insight here is don't don't set prior experience as a CEO as a core criteria in your search process. It doesn't mean that you don't want executive experience. You want some people who understand the way organizations work. But you know, prior experience as a CEO, particularly in the industry that you're operating in or in a similar sized firm, could actually be a liability rather than an asset in a potential leader. I, I agree, but one of the points that they're making in the paper, which I thought was very interesting, is that it's increasingly prevalent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So right. it's, the, the numbers are a little bit old, but they say here that between two, 2007 2009, almost 20% of newly appointed CEOs had had CEO experience, compared to fewer than 5% between 1995 and 2002. So I'm, I'm not sure what the trend is today, but if it's any anywhere like what it used to be, then boards are increasingly looking for CEOs with previous CEO experience. Right. But that could be just a misassessment of risk, right? So one of the reasons that you see is that firms say they're trying to mitigate their risk. Again, with some of those numbers, you're looking at right around the 2008 financial crisis and some of the things that happened in the wake of that. Maybe they're trying to mitigate their risk by choosing someone who already has experience in this domain without recognizing that you are not mitigating risk. You might be reproducing or engendering problems or higher, greater risk essentially for the firm through that line of reasoning than you realize. I mean, we know as human beings, we are, we are apt to logical fallacy and flawed reasoning. And I think that's one of the things we're seeing in a lot of firms. 
Now, of course, I don't think we're saying that hiring a CEO with previous CEO experience is necessarily a bad idea. There's obviously room for CEOs with previous CEO experience to to possess the mental flexibility and the alertness and the understanding that there are going to be a bunch of things that they're going to have to relearn or maybe even unlearn as they start a new position and and end up being super successful CEOs in in their new organization. Does the person demonstrate a capacity to unlearn? That's one of the things the boards need to look at when they hire new CEOs, right? It's not just previous experience. It's also also the the cognitive flexibility and and the epistemic humility, if I may use that phrase. I thought we were trying to use smaller words in this podcast. The humility. <laughs> I'm going to defenestrate um, you for that comment. <laughs> <laughs> the humility to um to accept that they have the new things to learn and possibly some things to unlearn. Yeah, absolutely. And and so trying to assess that possibility is is key for sure. And again, I know I made I alluded to this uh, a moment ago, but I really would underscore it. I think this idea of empowerment and decentralization of authority is is really important. It just managerially, right? Not just for CEOs, but I think a key insight from this research is that as managers, we need to be open to giving those with whom we work or those maybe who work for, who report to us some control over their decision-making and their assessment of their environment. But I think these are all really good insights. This is a really good discussion. I've been fascinated by some of these findings, including the more counterintuitive ones. But I think we've probably, what is the metaphor? Drank the dry, drank the well dry? I don't know. Left no stone, stone unturned. That's good. Left no stone unturned. Uh, so let's let's move to a few of our favorite things. Okay, so we had sort of run through the various arts in some of our previous discussions. So I think this week we were going to talk about our favorite directors, movie directors. So why don't you? Do you have one in mind? I do have Sean? one in mind, but why don't you go first, Uri? Yeah. So I I I dug deep, actually not that deep, but I, I guess I just wanted to make sure that I that I'm in keeping with my previous choices here in terms of the I think we've described them before as being what was it dark, sinister, oh, uh, uh, dystopian, actually, dystopian, yeah. something along these lines. So my my director of choice is a German director by the name of Michael Haneke. I think I, I'm pronouncing his name halfway correctly. Michael Haneke. I'm going to look it up as we speak. He is responsible for various movies. Those that, particularly, that are particularly mem- memorable to me are Funny Games, which was originally a German movie, but then it received an American remake. I think Naomi Watts was in the movie, if I'm not mistaken. So the American version is pretty good, but the German version, I think, is um, more of a punch to the gut. And he also did um, The White Ribbon, which is uh, another masterpiece, I think, back in 2009, 2010. And I, I guess the main... The main theme that runs through his work is the 
not quite dystopian, but his movies are, are profoundly and almost intentionally disconcerting. Mm. They're like a very discordant music. They're, they scratch your soul. Interesting. And and they they highlight aspects of life that are very unpleasant to think about consciously. Um, so just to give you a, a quick example, Funny Games, and um, there's not going to be any... Funny Games, 1997. Yeah, I'm looking it up as we speak. Yeah, go forward. There are not going to be any spoilers here, and it's not it's not this kind of movie anyway. But it's about a family, like a, a middle-aged, uh, a middle-class family that goes on goes on holiday to a, like a lake house, and they're all happy, and you know they're having a good time. And then someone knocks on the door, and it's two guys who live in the house nearby looking um, looking to borrow some eggs or something like that. Not sugar. Not sugar. Mm-hmm. Not flour. I think it's eggs. And very quickly, it turns out that these guys are up to no good, and they start messing with this family in all sorts of very sinister ways, play different types of games with them. And it's just very disconcerting to watch this, especially if you have kids. Mm. Um, and I'm not going to say much more than that, but many of these movies have this this tendency of, like I said before, surfacing some of the darker Real discomfort. aspects of it's beyond discomfort it's just very yeah it's it's very heavy stuff but i i think there's some you know they're obviously very interesting psychologically these movies yeah but and they're very confronting but i think he he touches on some fundamental elements of our existence which i i I think is is captivating and i i'm a fan i will definitely check it out i'll i have not seen any of his movies and i will check it out i i very much agree with you that one of the critical roles of art is to tap into the emotions and and maybe the maybe uh, I don't want to overstate it, but maybe the negative ones even more so than the positive ones. Like I I hate movies that always have to end on a happy ending. Like uh, I think it's important for us to sometimes sit in the dark parts of the human experience um and good art uh leads us to do that uh, in various ways so i will i will definitely check it out i'm intrigued i'm gonna go in the opposite direction though <laughs> so i just adam sandler uh, no uh wes anderson so i i'm a big fan of wes anderson every time he puts out a movie i'm like like even the like the claymation like stop motion animation ones like fantastic mr fox and isle of dogs i remember isle of dogs came out and i'm like i'm not gonna want to see this movie and i watched it on a flight and i'm like damn that guy just makes good movies uh so i'm a huge fan of wes anderson's movies um i assume a lot of the people listening would know his movies. His first prominent movie was Rushmore way back in 98, but um, he's done Darjeeling Limited, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. The most recent was The French Dispatch, which I thought was fantastic. Uh, Really great. He is one of these actors who tends to um, have a lot of go-to actors. So Jason Schwartzman, Bill Murray, Adrian Brody, Owen Wilson, I'm missing some very key ones. George George Clooney, um, 
he just he goes back to a lot of actors uh, repeatedly, and uh, I I've I've yet to see a movie of his that I didn't think was good. I think the only one that I've seen seen by him was Rushmore. Are you serious? And I I think oh, so. Dude. And Rushmore went it, it it came out in the late eighties, ninety eight, late nineties. You cannot see a Wes Anderson movie and not know immediately or within a couple of minutes that it's a Wes Anderson movie. Um, you know, once you've established the style, it's kind of like the the Coen Brothers. Uh, I'm also a huge fan of the huge fan of the Coen Brothers. But like you know, immediately when you see when it's a Coen Brothers movie. But I would I I, I would say you should watch the most recent uh, French Dispatch. I thought it was great. So of of all these movies, if I'm a, a newcomer to Wes Anderson, what's the first one I should watch? Do you think the first one? So uh, this is one where di- different people will have different opinions. So a lot of people love the Royal Tenenbaums. The Royal Tenenbaums is not my favorite. Since you've already oh hold on, I think I, I think I saw that one. It's Gene Hackman and Jason Schwartzman's in that one too, and um, uh-huh. Gwyneth Paltrow. Um, if you've already seen Rushmore, then I guess. I my next recommendation might be the Grand Budapest Hotel, which is not that old. It's well, I guess now it's nine years old, um, but I'm a I'm I thought it was a very good one. I really think you should see the French Dispatch though. That's the most recent of his movies. I think you should see it. Okay, I'll check it yeah. out. It's it's sort of a um, I'm going to be snobby and use the word homage. Uh, it's sort of an homage to the New Yorker, which in itself is snobby as hell. <laughs> an homage to the yeah, New Yorker, yeah, really? Like, that's like snobby and snobby, but nevertheless, it's like the one percent of the one percent. Yes, but nevertheless, it's really good. Um, the, uh, I mean, one of the things this guy does a really great job of is getting really good actors and actresses. Uh, drawn into his films and and that's certainly the case in that film jeffrey wright that's his name jeffrey wright does sort of a james baldwin-esque character that is just so good i think across different art forms in artists who have their own unique language they they tend to be the most captivating and i'm you know i'm thinking of since i played the guitar i'm thinking of guitar players and you know the they, the second they hit the string, you know that, that it's them, like Jeff Beck or David Gilmour, and directors. I mean, some directors, the second the movie starts, you know it's their movie, like Tarantino or you mentioned the Coen Brothers before. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, the, the ability to develop your own unique unique language and voice and just give it expression, I think is. Uh, is it's just great to, to watch that yeah it's a stuff. mark of a great filmmaker no doubt artist yeah, yeah for sure and i usually hate when like actors and actresses call themselves artists but i think directors are damn sure artists so that's my own two cents well the good ones right for sure for sure <laughs> <laughs> well let's wrap things great up great discussion really good discussion and uh I'll talk to you next week I'll see you next time bye Sean.